Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Nursing Matters with me, Rachel Hollis. I'm the chair of the Royal College of Nursing Professional Nursing Committee. I'm a children's cancer nurse and I live in North Yorkshire. This week I'm joined for the first time as co-host by our PNC member for the West Midlands, Ray McMorrow. Welcome, Ray. Hello. Ray, this is the first time you've joined the podcast. Just tell us a bit about yourself and and why you're here today. I'm I'm a mental health nurse specialising in child mental health and safeguarding. I trained in the East End of London in the 70s and through my early career noticed the difference in the experience of black people in mental health institutions. And that developed a lifelong interest in the impact of environment on people's mental health. And I'm looking forward to today's conversation. Thank you, because, yes, today does mark Black History Month when the RCN recognises and celebrates the valuable ongoing contribution of nursing professionals from black, Asian and minority ethnic backgrounds. And in this week's episode of Nursing Matters, our special guest is Dr Anne Mitchell. Anne is a mental health nurse who's worked as a practitioner, an educationalist and a researcher during her long career. She's the chair of a subgroup of the RCN's Mental Health Forum, that aims to explore and address the impact of racism and racial inequality on mental health and on mental health nurses. Anne helped shape the RCN's response to the government's consultation on reforming the Mental Health Act in 2021 and is passionate about improving the care of minoritised communities, as well as supporting nurses from those communities in advocating for fair treatment and equal opportunities for career development, including education and leadership skills. So we're delighted that Anne has been able to join us today. Hello, Anne, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much for that introduction, Rachel. I wonder, Anne, if you could tell us a little bit about sort of about yourself, how and where you started nursing and where where your career took you. Well, I was initially trained in the late 70s and qualified in 1981 as a mental health nurse. So I do come from a nursing background and have always been passionate about mental health nursing. But following my my registration, I only worked for a very short time in um, what they used to call a psychogeriatric hospital. But I always had a thirst for working in the community. So I was probably only in this unit for about six months when I was asked, if I wanted to apply for a job in the community day hospital, mm-hmm. which I did. And that launched the second half of my career in community psychiatric nursing. I worked in the Sutton sort of South London area. But then I moved to Norfolk with my husband, where I then worked with the West Suffolk Health Authority again as a community psychiatric nurse. I loved that nature of the work. It was my passion because you could actually see people in their own home environment and then meet their needs in the way they wanted to. And so I did my teaching course, followed by um, a first degree program, a BSc honours in in, um, health sciences. And within that, I remained in that institution for a number of years. And I then continued to develop myself as well as the students. But I'll bring in a bit now about their ethnic minority students because I was very aware even then that there was a disparity in what they were achieving compared to their white counterparts. And then following on from the university um, position, I started looking into PhD programs because that was the other side of me 
the inquiring mind. I had quite an inquiring mind and wanted, I always asked lots of questions. And so that brought me into the research side of my, of my career. I wanted to find out things. And one of the things I wanted to know is, um, I, I'm, I, I didn't say this in the beginning, but I'm originated from Guyana, British Guyana. Mm-hmm. And so as a Guyanese person living in this country, I um, I was very interested in how Guyanese people who first came in the 60s and 70s managed to cope with living in this society. So I, that is when I embarked on my PhD study. I opted to I get a job at the Open University, and that opened up the new horizons and to continue my own development, distance learning, writing, traveling overseas to various conferences. I developed then that um, global view of, of nursing, if you like, to some extent, but also of mental health nursing and education across the board. So you can see that my career has moved from being a mental health nurse along the pathway of becoming an educationalist to a researcher, mm-hmm. but very much aware all the time of some of the qualities and, and difficulties our ethnic minority groups face. And in 2018, the government um, commissioned an independent review of the 1983 Mental Health Act. Can you tell us what some of the key findings of that review were? Well, for me, obviously, it, it came at the right time to have a review after so many years. And I, I felt that um, um, people needed to... One of the, for me, the key findings was the support that should be given to people to make the right choices and preferences about their care and treatment as they wish. And to actually also to consider their wishes, their preferences and their choices, which I felt were not always respected. The other point is about improving choice and decision making both prior to and within a setting of compulsion. Another key finding for me was about restoring dignity to the people and the system, because I felt the lack of dignity and a lack of trust um, that was always sometimes evident that patients will not be treated kindly and with respect, I think in times can actually inspire fear, fear within them. The other fundamental importance for me is about um, human rights in mental health care, that this is an important part and we are obligated to comply with the Human Rights Act 1998 and other acts instead, but I mentioned human rights. We are in no doubt that structural factors which engender racism, stigma and stereotyping increase the risk of differential experiences in ethnic minority communities. Another one is about choosing which family member or friend is given particular rights to be involved in the care. That was something quite new. And then providing culturally appropriate advocacy and a wider range of support for those from advocates to better help people from a range of ethnic minority backgrounds. The list is endless, but these were the key points. What's your current position with regards to 
um, reform of the act. The whole issue again, still about meeting the needs of the minority people, particularly black men, I still feel hasn't been addressed sufficiently. And I have raised this in this meeting, in the meeting we had. Um, I think that was the, when I looked at the act, the, the fact that Caribbean and African men are still treated abysmally when they're sectioned under the Mental Health Act. And the fact that we are still not addressing this is a concern. And the other thing too, I felt some of it, I, I read it all out to you, but some of it feels like rhetoric. Until you see it in, in essence, and they actually spell out how they're going to do this. Yes, have lots of advocates, have lots of people, but where are the systems to make sure these things are in place has been my greatest concern. So there was the consultation on the Act, but the Act hasn't yet been reformed, has it? Am I, am I, and so one of the, you know, I understand that the work that you and others did on the consultation through the RCN was actually one of the reasons that you established the Ethnic Minority Subcommittee, is that? That was right, yeah, because we feel it wasn't being addressed, yes. Um, and, and and there was another another key factor, actually, about the roles too, because there are specific roles that you need to have for your practitioners, the approved clinician and responsible clinician. And while we know these these positions actually are quite limited even now among nursing staff, we felt that ethnic minority um, practitioners actually do not ever achieve that particular position in order to, uh, a senior position in order to be able to, to take on these roles. So that was another concern when we started to develop this subgroup, and that's when the broader issue of ethnic minority nurses not achieving their true potential, not getting into more senior positions and the prejudices and so forth that are meted out to them, that started a conversation for us within the forum. So it sounds like there were kind of two separate issues almost. So yes. one being the treatment of um, people with mental health conditions yes. and the other one, being the role of mental health nurses. Yes. So maybe first, if we think about, so so in terms of priorities around the treatment of people with mental health conditions from minoritized communities, what, what are the priorities of the, you know, that you see that that real change needs to happen? Well, one of the major changes is transcultural care. Mm -hmm. And that is what is missing. And transcultural care has been around since the 80s. <laughs> and again, it's not developed. It's, it's paid lip service. And by transcultural care, I mean, we can't expect every ethnic minority patient that comes in to have an ethnic minority nurse deliver that care. You've got to think of the ratios. It's everybody's business. It's all of us need to actually understand people's culture, each other's cultures of, of, of practitioners, but also understand the culture of your patients. You need to read up, you need to find out, you need to engage with them and get to know them in more detail so you can deliver what's best for them. And we feel that's still missing. In actual fact, the, 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 the point that was made that we've just got some green shoots happening we need to develop this more formally within the within our trust. 
So that was the one great thing we mentioned, one main issue we felt needed to do. Yeah, I was a, I was a bit shocked and following through on recent reports as somebody who worked in the institutions uh, right into the mid eighties and beyond. And like you say, I was I was really I felt we were going places around transcultural care. You know, I experienced the um, inappropriate levels of incarceration under the Mental Health Act of of black and ethnic minority people, but particularly black men, as you say. And we tried to introduce some some transcultural care is even about things like food, you know, and actually, you know, making sure that the food when they arrive in a hospital, so they're obviously in a in a state where they are quite distressed in the first place, that you create familiarity around them. And, you know, serving them food that was, you know, appropriate to them was one of the big battles I had at that time. But it did shock me to find that the, the levels of um, incarceration continue to this day. Because I thought we already recognized that. And working abroad in Bermuda, a, a, you know, a predominantly black Caribbean country, I realized that um, the black men could come in, in in very psychotic and very ill states and yet be discharged within a couple of weeks and back at their work. And it struck me that it was about, I think it was called... Uh, Big, black, and dangerous. Around. I wrote. I wrote. I wrote in the mental health practice journal about it. Yeah, and that actually, it, it was this perception of danger from from the black man that dominated their being maintained, incarcerated, and been given double the amount of antipsychotics. When in fact, the evidence showed that they needed half the amount of antipsychotics to a Caucasian man. So if we haven't learned these things, it's really, it's, it really is quite important that yes. the agenda No, We still haven't learned because, yes, it still continues today. And I've got, I, I won't name the service user, but the service user who was part of the launch of the subgroup, he talked about his recent experiences and it's just, what you've just described at St. Andrews so many years ago, that is still happening. And that's the concern. And it has to change. So, you know, it has been a big plea for us to look at transcultural care in much more detail. But going back to, to your question, Rachel, I think that's the important area because it's everybody's got to learn about everybody else's culture, your colleagues you're working with, and also your patients. And also people need to learn about the English culture too, about your colleagues and their likes and dislikes. I, I, I come from, I'm an action researcher, as I said to you, so I come from collaboration. And I believe if you collaborate and you work together, you can gain so much more. It's not a single element. It's togetherness is what I believe in. And that's continuing prevails today. So transcultural care being one of the things that you advocate for. Are, are there other really, you know, what are the other key areas of change that you think are needed in order to make care? So thinking f still about sort of care of, yeah, yeah. of pe the people with mental health conditions. Are there other things that you think we need to to change? What are some of the other things that you put forward through, you know, the response to the consultation on the Mental Health Act? Well, I think also um, education, education of our communities. Mm -hmm. um, stigma still prevails mm -hmm. um, among ethnic minority communities. And we need to be, again, having more focus groups and workshops within these communities 
you know, being educated by their own. So many of our mental health practitioners actually could be educating their communities more about some of these issues related to, to, to mental to mental health and recognizing the conditions early. That was the other thing I picked up because they wait until they develop very florid symptoms because of fear and fear within their own communities because they too, they don't always understand these concepts of, you know, some of the more serious conditions, psychosis and so forth. So they're frightened and then they don't they don't want to discuss it. So it's, it's, it's actually engaging with them that I think is really important. The other area, as you said, is about our mental health practitioners. They too need to be skilled up as well, uh, all of them. But our, our, our ethnic minority practitioners need to because if they're in more senior positions, they're more likely to bring about the change we're talking about in attitudes and behaviors to our black men when, when they're admitted to hospital. But they're in lesser roles, and that is a comment made. They're in lesser roles, so they're less likely to be in part of the, the, the overriding actions to bring about the change. And, and I think and that, that probably brings us then to that second part of the work of the forum, which is then about actually the professionals that you, that you work with. You just said people are not necessarily in more senior roles who come from ethnic minority backgrounds. And certainly we know from, you know, both from the NHS Workforce Race Equality Standards Survey, the WRES survey. Right. Yes, um, yes. Yeah, and that showed that that black and minority ethnic nurses are discriminated against almost three times more than white nurses. Mm. And actually, the RCN did a report earlier this year showing that racism is endemic in in health and care, with white nurses twice as likely to get promoted as their peers of of non-white ethnicity. You know, how would you describe the experience of ethnic minority staff? working in, in the NHS and outside the NHS, because, of course, many of our RCN members, many nurses don't work in the NHS. They work in other care settings. Yes. Well, um, that's a really good question. I gave that some thought, too. And I think what is important, um, I'm quite a positivist-type person, come from a positive dimension. I think there have been pockets of of good practice mm -hmm. um, when ethnic nurses have actually achieved senior positions. So I think that's really important to say. Um, but also um, our ethnic minority nurses, they, they miss out of these, of these senior roles because um, I think sometimes they too lack the confidence and the assertiveness in order to always apply for them. And, and, and in addition, um, actually networking. Networking sometimes seems to be an issue for them. So there are particular skills that they need to gain in order to, to be able to take on the challenges of going for promotion. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where leadership comes in, leadership programs, uh, you know, pertaining to their needs that, that we, we should be developing, and that is happening. So that's my experience. The other experience I've had, though, is that um, what then happens for many of them, they feel that they're excluded within the system, within what they call the white networks of power and limited, and they feel they're limited opportunities for them for staff development and promotion. So even though 
they're aware of what's happening from them, they feel there is an exclusion that takes place that keeps them out. And I think that's where the prejudice and the racism maybe stands. That's really interesting, Anne. Um, I, I, I sat at the end of um, the Mary Seacole lecture at, um, at the RCN Congress this year, and there was a very in- interesting conversation amongst the, um, um, the black nurses themselves about both the, um, the, that white culture, but also the self-censorship in, in applying for jobs. Then actually, the, the, the number of occasions when you talked about not applying for jobs as well, because you didn't want to go through the process of humiliation of not being shortlisted and those issues. And then a more vociferous group were saying, we have to apply for the jobs because otherwise you don't have the evidence, which was really interesting. Um, within the uh, work of the Mental Health Forum subcommittee, uh, it's been focusing on supporting nursing professionals ethnic minority um, backgrounds navigating systemic racism and bullying culture that exists in in, in many health and social care set, settings. Um, how does this culture impact on the mental health of nursing professionals personally themselves and what impact does that leave on the wider profession do you think? Well yes I mean that's again another very good question because we know that systemic racism exists in many forms and at many levels in society, including healthcare. Um, and we know that it has an impact on an individual. Um, again, but at, at, um, at system level, uh, we can see the wider impact of the inequalities and the power imbalances and how these are now maintained, if you like, in policy, law, ec- economics, culture and the wider society. But where at work is the institutional racism, which is part of our systemic racism, um, that that then can act as that barrier to, for, um, to promotion for our, as we look at our ethnic minority nurses. The institution sometimes needs a culture of, ch- a culture of change in, uh, and, and actually look at itself critically in some way, to find out why this is happening. And if you think about it, if they can't get promotion, these barriers can affect, I'm looking again at the minority nurses, these barriers can affect their income, their life chances, and their opportunities. So if you're like, I'm saying systemic, you start with the institution, but then if you move down, it, it then prevents you from getting the jobs and the opportunities to elevate yourself in that society to earn the income and etc. So you're kept at a very low pecking level, if you like, for another word. And then if you think of the wider society, you said about the, the profession of the, of, of the whole. Um, I mean, we, we are talking about ethnic minority nurses, but I think this can also apply to many of our white colleagues. They too probably suffer from similar issues because not every white colleague that goes into nursing actually achieves a top position. And can I also say that not every ethnic minority nurse is going to achieve a top position. It's the opportunities that you make available for them. And and then I, I guess the question then is kind is, is um as you say, not that these there are issues 
that stop many people from going to top position. Obviously, not everyone can be in a top position. We need nurses at, at all levels of of the profession. And yeah. I guess, you know, is is racism? Do you think the only um, source of inequality that we need to be thinking about, um, or are there other sources of inequality that we? need to address as as well and I guess I'm sort of thinking partly of the concept of intersectionality you know that that actually there are even within particular communities then there are subsections who may um, experience inequality from a range of different angles. Yes yes I mean intersectionality prevails and that was one of the comments I made about the review that they Mm -hmm. hadn't considered intersectionality in the range of factors that actually cause inequalities, you Mm. know, poor housing, ineffective jobs, not access to appropriate services. There's a number of factors that can give rise to it for for all, not just ethnic minorities across the board, yes. Yeah. And and if we do think about this um systemic racism that you've that you've talked of and institutional racism, what what do you think we can do um as a as a Royal College? What can we do as the RCN to help tackle that? That was a really interesting one because obviously I um and I'll I'll go back a bit with you because I've been with the Royal College of Nursing, I notice here with my subscription since nineteen eighty six. And yet it's only now at this stage of my career I'm engaging with the Royal College of Nursing. Mm-hmm. So that raises a big question, doesn't yeah. it? Why is yeah. that? Mm. And I'm saying that to you because I think within the Royal College of Nursing, we need to start to have a conversation about racism. Mm-hmm. And I think that's not happening. Mm. It needs to. And I'll refer to another example because when I, I was surprised when I applied um, to go on the mental health committee, mm-hmm. that there were only white members interviewing me, and I mentioned it. And I said, I raised this at the interview, and I said, how how can you represent the interests of all your BME nurses if they're not represented within this structure and other structures? Mm-hmm. Now, I'm aware of that now with the RCN, that it's got several structures. There's a union, and then there's the professional arm to it. And you need to have representatives of all those structures of all your groups. That is what is missing. Yeah, no, and and I think that that's very much reflected in the recent publication of the Carr Review, the report by, by Bruce Carr, which not only identifies experience of racism and, and misogyny, but I think very much talks about, you know, the lack of representation within those um, uh, representative committees and, and other committees. don't know, Anne, have you had the opportunity to read that, that report? I have looked at that report, yes. Yeah. I have. I was shocked, horrified. Um, and, and I tell you why I was shocked and horrified, because I've been to a few of your congresses, um, but I should say our congresses because I, I well, I'm a member. Oh, yeah. And um and I I I didn't know anything like that went on, obviously. And I was just I thought, you know, how could the institution allow itself to get the situation to this stage? Why wasn't it picked up before? Why did it need a big report? in order to identify this? Why did people not report it? So it made me think, 
well, what is happening? Is this a closeted type of institution where people just keep things to themselves and not say anything? So that worried me, that, that people are not being frank and open. It's a bit like the racism, not talking about racism, but they're not talking about the other issues occurring within the, the RCN, within the organization. And why not? Mm. Almost fear. It felt like a fear factor was there that prevented people from really talking the truth about what was happening and victim blaming and don't blame others, which is a concern. That is a concern when that happens. So, but what was good about it, I thought Pat Collin has really grabbed it, you know, <laughs> and decided I'm going to do something and start to make changes. And I thought that was really good. And the other point I would make is that they, they've actually, they've identified the issues now and the college is generally trying to address it. But you do need more representation in the council. One black person in the council is not enough. It really is not. Ray, any sort of reflections from you on on that? Because I know it's something that we've we've talked about, the, the review and the report. Yeah, I think I... I, I... I, I share with you, Anne, that, well, uh, like Rachel as well, I've been to many congresses over the years, actually, and uh, there were elements of, of what was in the report that shocked me and, uh, and that uh, I, I, I couldn't say I'd witnessed, um, which made me wonder, you know, about what was going on there, whether collusive groups somewhere that, 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 that I was um, disconnected to, but other parts of it in the hall, I think, where I did recognize after, you know, I did recognize that there were groups who dominate the process. And uh, and in this year's, I think that the very strong representation from the international nurses, um, I think, started to give a different flavor and opened up the agenda in a way that I think does give the RCN opportunities to move forward and really focus on its inclusiveness across the piece really and um, that of course includes uh, um, vain professionals but even it's i think bizarrely for a nursing group even even its responsiveness to female uh, representation um yes. needs to be attended to you know it's 80 percent of the membership yeah and whoever you are you need to as you say attend to equality and diversity at all times? It, it, well, it, it, yes, it chimes with my experience. Yes, it chimes with my experience that, as you remember, I said, we have a few, a few, a few of our ethnic minority nurses that have got top positions, but they're so marginal, actually, that people, yeah, people haven't seen very good examples from within trust. Yeah, in actual fact, I this is a question I asked even yesterday, and a response I got from a nurse is was that she said, "I'm actually looking for another job at the moment, and I can't wait to leave this trust." Mm-hmm. And I, I think um, at the moment there's a, a a lot of unhappiness with people's um, experiences of of working conditions, not only. Um, from those for from minority ethnic backgrounds, but actually more generally in in nursing, um, issues around particularly um, staffing levels. I think in in many settings, and of course around um, fair pay. And uh, the RCN has 
opened its biggest ever strike ballot just earlier this month. Um, in fact, uh, you know, the responses to that ballot votes have to be in very, very soon. And um, eligible members are, are being encouraged to vote yes to strike action to help secure better pay and better conditions for all all nurses. And Anne, I know that you've written a blog about this for the for the RCN. Why do you think it's important that members take part in the strike ballot? We clapped for the nurses, didn't we, when they went through such a difficult time with COVID and, and the crisis and the issues they faced. But what the award, the current award is, the current pay award for them. So... I think it's a, it's a significant, and I'm going to say it out, significant and positive opportunity for us all to influence change. Remember I said to you about action research, it always comes back. I'm an action researcher, and that is about change. You've got to bring about change, and how do you do that? And this came up a lot at Congress. I listened to Congress. I couldn't get there, but I listened online. And in Congress, we want to be said it. We want to have change. We want to be valued. And we want to be given our true worth for the work that we are doing. And that is normally in terms of pay. But they were very aware they don't want this to affect their patients. So they will not be doing anything to harm their patients in any way, any shape or form. And if I know nurses, we always give it our best, even when we want to strike. <laughs> no, certainly any strike action that is taken will absolutely prioritise patient patient safety as as happened in the the strikes in in northern ireland exactly and the other point to make is that the nursing midwifery council to which i still belong to recognizes that nurses midwives and nursing associates have the right to take part in lawful industrial action including strike action yeah we know and that for nurses that strike action and as nurses that strike action is a is a last resort um, and something our members never take lightly. Um, and, and as you, both at council, at Congress, etc., I think we did hear that um, you know um, many members from eth um, ethnic minorities feel that they may be treated more unfairly than their colleagues if they take uh, strike action. Probably, I, I would say, particularly the international students felt quite anxious about what it might mean for them, cost them their jobs, or the, um, you know diminish career pro prospects or even cause their um their uh visa in the country you know those those sort of issues that, that worry people and i think i guess that takes us back to your earlier point Anne, about you know people not seeing the rcn as being a place for them you know that not represented there and and therefore not seeing what perhaps can be you know the value in in membership of an organization that is you know as we know both a union and a professional body and i think that was one of the other findings from the car review wasn't it that we really need to strengthen that dual identity um as being both a union and a professional body so that people can can see the the value in it yes i mean i don't have the answer to answer your question ray because um Rachel already had said why many of them didn't, um, you know, the fear. Well, I think you said it too. The fear of reprisals if they um, if they did strike. Um, but the other point I made, I had another contact, and I got her to ask a number of of her colleagues in practice what they thought, and they said, "Oh, 
We haven't even thought about striking. We haven't given that any thought. So I'm not sure what percentage you will get from them. I did do that blog in order to encourage them that they can do this. But it's the reprisal. She said that it's the reprisals and that there's still fear, which is why they don't even bother about it. And important that, as as you said, Anne, that, you know, we're really clear about the fact that, you know, taking industrial action is a is a, a legal right and one that's supported by our our regulators at the NMC. So I, you know, I would really encourage people to take part in the ballot, those who are members um, and those who are eligible, because it's also not all members who are are eligible. Um, but also to remind people actually that uh, ballot papers have to be back by midday on November the second. So we're getting close to the end of the of the the period for for balloting we're not only getting close to the end of the ballot period but we're also getting close to the end of our podcast so for this week i want to particularly thank um, our special guest and mitchell so Anne, thank you very much thank you thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to voice my views yes and Thanks to my co-host Ray McMorrow. Thank you, Ray. Uh, thank you, guys. It's been a, it's been a, a, a rich conversation. I've really enjoyed um, uh, discussing this with you, Anne. So we'll be back with our podcast very soon. Remember to follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>